the most important thing that can happen during this sermon is not that I could deliver an impressive and well-crafted message. It's not that this might be an entertaining enterprise for us. It's not even that you would be helped in some of the practical issues of your daily lives. The most important thing that could possibly happen during this time right now is that I could proclaim to you that Jesus is the Christ and that we all could receive Jesus as the Christ, understand Jesus as the Christ. That's the most important thing, my, my highest prayer for our time together right now. I recognize that we don't always come into church feeling like that's what we want to hear. I know that some of you have things going on in your lives that are so pressing and so painful and so genuinely important to you that that seems to be the big issue of your life right now. But I truly believe, based on God's word, that that's not actually the big issue of your life. The big issue of your life is, do you know, understand, trust, follow Jesus as the Christ? You see, when we pick up tips and tidbits on how to live our lives better and how to deal with this interpersonal conflict or this financial issue, it's like picking up crumbs off the floor underneath the dining room table. But when we come back to Jesus as the Christ, it's like a feast for our souls. And you need deep, soul-level spiritual bread. You need the bread of life, the nourishment that comes from looking upon Jesus as the Christ and renewing or placing your trust and allegiance in him. And so that's what we're about this morning. We're returning to the book of Mark. We come back to Mark around Easter and around Christmas until we work our way through the entire book. Um, We find ourselves in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. But as I was preparing for this sermon I didn't feel good about just starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, and just working our way through like we normally do. I think it would be better for us today to zoom out a little bit, and instead of looking at individual trees, to look at the forest. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll come in and look at some of the most important trees in the forest. But for today, let's just look at the broad picture of Mark, Mark chapter 7, 8, and 9, really, but especially chapter 8. As you approach chapter 8, a pattern kind of emerges. You know, I study the Bible so much, I'm not ever sure if I'm going crazy or not. You know, you picture a crazy person with all kinds of charts and graphs on his wall, and they're unbathed, and they're like confused looking. I am bathed, but I have studied it so much, and I, I feel here that I see this pattern emerge. I'm going to kind of lay out to you this pattern that I think I see. Take it with a grain of salt, but for me, it helps me understand this pattern portion of Mark, and therefore helps me understand Jesus better. So at the end of Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus heal a deaf man. He gives a deaf man the ability to hear. Okay, that's at the very end of Mark chapter 7. That was the last sermon that was preached back around Christmas time last year. Okay, and then midway through chapter 8, we see Jesus heal a blind man. So there he he gave a deaf man the ability to hear, and then over here he gives a blind man the ability to see. So look at these like bookends. And then in between, we see a miracle and then the reactions of the Pharisees and the disciples that shows that they can neither 
truly hear nor truly see who Jesus is. And Jesus even says in Mark chapter 8, verse 17, frustrated with the disciples, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? So you have these bookends, deaf man can hear, blind man can see, and in the middle, nobody spiritually seems to be able to either hear or see. And then right after that, you have Peter's confession. Jesus says, but who do you say I am? In uh, verse 29, and Peter says, you are the Christ. So heals a deaf man, explains that the disciples are neither seeing or hearing for real who he is, heals a blind man, and then Peter says, you're the Christ. And then after that, this verse 29 of chapter 8 is the hinge of the book. Everything changes after that. You know, Mark is 16 chapters long, chapter 8 right in the middle. Everything changes after Christ identifies, I'm sorry, after Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus immediately starts teaching that he's going to the cross to die for sins. And then he starts teaching that if you want to follow him, you need to take up your cross and deny yourself. Okay, so for what it's worth, that's the pattern that I'm seeing here. But the main thing I'd like you to notice is that, that hinge moment when Jesus says, who, who do people think that I am? And the disciples say, well, some think you're Elijah, some think you're a prophet. And then he looks at them and says, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Okay, that's sort of the, the apex of the roller coaster. If you've ever been on a roller coaster, it clicks up all the way. And in Mark, it's been clicking up toward this apex. We see Jesus's divine authority as he teaches, his divine authority over demons and disease and nature. We see his conflict with the hypocritical religious people. And then we get to the very top right here before you go over the, the edge. Peter identifies Jesus correctly as the Christ. And then we're off to the races. He starts teaching about why he must die for sins. The disciples still didn't fully understand why he had to die and all of that. But that's, that is the, the apex, the hinge, the most important part of this whole section. What does it mean that Jesus is Christ? Okay, you've heard the term Christ many times. Jesus Christ, we are Christians, Christians. What does it mean? This is really, really important. Okay, Christ is a title, not a name. His first name isn't Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is his title. It literally means anointed one or Messiah. It describes his function and his position. So I, you might know me as Pastor Matt, okay? Pastor is not in my name. My mom didn't name me Pastor, middle name Matt, last name Broadway, hoping that maybe I'd be a pastor. Pastor is my title. It describes my function and my position. Uh, one of the Linker boys used to accidentally call me Master Pat. I can't remember which boy it was. Or it might have been Randy. I can't remember. It might have been Randy. Called me Master Pat. Christ is his title. It describes his function and his position. Now, it's interesting as you read through the New Testament, sometimes you'll see, most often you'll see Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll see Christ Jesus. And it's often Paul who calls him Christ Jesus and uses the title first. 
And a lot of people suspect that he does that more than others because he first met him as Christ and only then got to know him as Jesus. Whereas all these other disciples met him as Jesus and then came to know him as Christ. Okay, it's his title and it's very, very important for understanding who he is. Knowing Jesus as the Christ is knowing Jesus in his proper role and function, in reality and in your life. Now, when the Jewish people said that he is the Christ, when Peter, when the disciples, when Jesus, when they used that word Christ, it came with this huge weight and history of Old Testament prophecy. Over 300 prophecies pointing ahead, a Christ is coming, an anointed one is coming, a Messiah is coming. The initiator of God's rule of righteousness and peace is coming. The Savior King is coming. The one who would deliver God's people from the power and penalty of sin is coming. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, he is saying, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one who for centuries we've been waiting for as a people. You're the one who all of the prophets were pointing to. All the books of the Old Testament were pointing to. You're the Savior King. You're the Messiah. You're the Anointed One. You are the long-awaited Deliverer. Now, what they couldn't understand and what we understand, looking back on it, is that he was the rescuing King of Kings who would die for the sins of his people, rise again, ascend into heaven, and then return to fully establish his kingdom. The disciples at this point didn't fully understand all of that. But he was right that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is important for us, lest you start to glaze over. This is very important for us because many people who believe they are Christians don't actually know Jesus as Christ. Many people in churches know Jesus as a teacher, as a moral example, as a lucky rabbit's foot, as a historical hero, as a social club mascot, as an inspirational figure. And as such, since they know him in these puny offices, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the moral example, Jesus the lucky rabbit's foot, since they only know him in these fictional offices that are not really his, or they don't fulfill the truth of what his true office is, they only know him, they, they only learn from him or try to emulate him or perhaps even cherish him or perhaps revere him or adore him or celebrate him, put him on a pedestal. But all of that falls far short of the proper reaction to the Christ. Knowing Jesus as the Christ means that we must either respond by entrusting our lives to him and swearing full and total allegiance to him, or we must reject him. Either he is the king of kings, long prophesied, the one and only savior, or he is not. But he cannot be this weird in-between good man. He didn't leave that option to us, nor did he intend to as C.S. Lewis is quoted in your bulletin. 
And if we miss him as the Christ, we miss all of these eternal benefits he came to bring. We miss deliverance from our sins. We miss freedom from the power and penalty of our sins. We miss reconciled relationship with God. We miss new creation, new birth. And we're left with a human man-made religion that ultimately gets us nowhere. Now from these chapters, I just want to share three basic contours of the forest with you. And then next week we'll look at more specifics. And then it'll, I think, put us landing in a, a perfect spot as we have Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday just a few weeks away. My three points, I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then I'll flesh them out a little bit. Number one, it's possible to be near to Jesus, yet not understand that he is the Christ. Number two, not understanding that Jesus is the Christ leaves us preoccupied with the things of this earth. And number three, understanding Jesus as the Christ changes everything. So first, it's possible to be near to Jesus and not understand that he is the Christ. If you look in your Bibles with me at verses chapter, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, <clears throat> what we're about to read happens almost immediately after Jesus miraculously feeds thousands and thousands of people with just a little bit of bread and a couple of little fish. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. I don't know if it was just so exciting there where Jesus multiplied all this bread and they had seven huge baskets left over, but they got into their boat. Verse 14, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So these guys had been with Jesus through all of his teaching, all of his miracles, all of the demon um, deliverances, all the, all the miracles. The miracle of the bread for five thousand, the miracle of the bread for four thousand. And yet there was something fundamental about him that they still did not understand. They had been in the boat with him. They had shared meals with him. They had laid down for rest at night beside him, walked with him, lived life with him, and they still did not understand something essential about him. In verse 29, I think it's revealed why he's frustrated. What they'd missed is what Peter finally got. He is the Christ. They knew Jesus. If someone said, do you know this guy? They would have said, yeah. They knew him, but not as the Christ. So I have a doctor now that I've, I've seen a couple of times, um, and his name is Dr. Elkin. Okay, and I know him as Dr. Elkin. And since I go to him as Dr. Elkin, I receive medical benefits from him. I receive his medical work. 
Okay, now I'm sure he has people in his life, maybe guys he plays basketball with at the gym, that know him as Anthony. Maybe they call him Tony. Okay, they know the same guy that I know, but they're not receiving any medical help from him because they don't know him as Dr. Elkin. Okay, they know him as Anthony. Until they go to his office and they come to him as Dr. Elkin, they'll never receive the benefits of the fact that he's a doctor. So don't be deceived. Okay, though one may know Jesus, until they know him as Jesus Christ, they don't know the Christ-saving benefits of him. This is one reason why growing up in church is not sufficient for salvation. Many have grown up in church and still not known Jesus as the Christ. You can go to Sunday school. You can, all the stuff I laid out before the sermon, you can go be a part of all that and still not know Jesus as the Christ. That's why church can be really dangerous. And if you miss Jesus as the Christ, you miss all these eternal benefits that he came to bring. Point number two, not understanding Jesus as the Christ leaves us preoccupied with the things of earth. How did, what led Jesus to all these rhetorical questions that we just read? You know, do you not understand? Are you hard of heart? Do your ears not hear? Do your eyes not see? Well, it was, verses six, it was verse 16. He just tried to teach them something, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Without the Christ, our field of vision is limited to the things of earth. They did not yet understand that they were in the boat with the bread of life, the Christ. And so their field of vision was limited to their growling bellies and their lack of physical bread. And that's the condition we remain in until we come to know Jesus as the Christ. Until we know Jesus as the Christ, sermons will only be oratorical performances to be critiqued and not the word of God to be received. Prayer will only be things we say and not communication with the God of the universe. Our bodies will only be for pleasure and comfort and getting the job done and not living sacrifices created in the image of God to honor and worship him. Church will only be a buffet of preferences and not the body of Christ, the flock of God, the family of God. Marriages will only be relational contracts unto happiness rather than living gospel presentations lived out as husbands sacrifice themselves for their wives, wives sacrifice themselves for their husbands as a way of showing the love of God through Jesus Christ to the world. Money will only be for accumulating and maintaining treasures on earth and not for building up treasures in heaven. And we will always seek the same things that all the nations who don't know God seek rather than seeking the kingdom of God. And our souls will be left parched and barren and will desperately move from one distraction to another just trying to survive. All the while, 
The fount of living water is right here in the boat with us. The bread of life is right here in the boat with us. The one who would satisfy our souls for all of eternity as the Christ is right here with us. Point number three, understanding Jesus as the Christ changes everything. I'm not going to dwell on this one too much because this is for a later sermon. But down after Jesus heals the blind man, in verse 27, we read of another encounter, another conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Understanding Jesus as the Christ moves his death on the cross into a central position into our lives, just as it does into a central position of this text and in Mark's book. It moves his death to a central position in our lives, making all those things I just listed earlier flipped upside down, and our entire lives flipped upside down. It changes everything. He goes on to, to give some of the hardest teaching about what it means to follow him, starting in verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Often we, as the church, gravitate toward a crossless Christianity, a Christianity that does not require Jesus' death on the cross, a Christianity of self-help and self-improvement. But understanding Jesus as the Christ puts the cross central, and it turns everything upside down, and it changes everything. So I want to close this sermon just by giving you the gospel. And then we're going to have a time of prayer. And this is going to be, we're going old-fashioned this Sunday, and we're even going to have an altar call. And this is a time for you to come and pray. It's a time for you, if you do not know Jesus as the Christ, to come and get to know Jesus as the Christ. You come and pray, and I'll come and pray with you if you'd like, or if you just need some time to pray, that's fine too. There is a glorious eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, majestic, holy God. And he existed before anything else existed. And he created everything that is created, including humanity. And he created humans in his image to worship him and love him and enjoy him. But when Adam and Eve chose poorly and they sinned and sin entered the world, it wrecked everything especially humanity's relationship with God and one another. 
and where we were designed to be constantly outpouring in worship and loving service to others, we turned inward and we worshiped ourselves as gods and we served ourselves only. And that has been the human problem from all history. It shows itself in all kinds of different ways, but ultimately our problem is we're all shriveled inward with sin. God, rich in mercy and grace, did not just squash us like bugs. He came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to be one of us and to live the life that we failed to live and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And in so doing, all who would trust and believe in his life and death and resurrection are freed from the curse of sin, reconciled with God, given new hearts, newly created, able once again to, to unfurl from ourselves and worship and unfurl from ourselves and love and serve people like we were designed to do. Jesus Christ is the linchpin in all of this. So what's left for us is not to try to roll up our sleeves and do better, but to decide and respond to Jesus Christ. To embrace him, to accept him as the Christ, is to turn over the keys to our life to him, to entrust our salvation into his hands, to follow him as our living Lord. Anything else is rejection of him as Christ including coming on Sundays and sitting in pews and listening to the Bible and then going out into the world and ignoring it. For some, coming to church is a way of rejecting Christ. It's just another flavor of rejection. Because accepting him as the Christ changes everything. Isn't it good? Isn't it such good news that God did not just give us a a teacher He didn't only give us a teacher to learn from. He gave us a Christ to save us. He didn't just give us a a really good man to admire. He gave us a Christ to trust in. He didn't just give us an example to emulate. He gave us a deliverer. He gave us salvation. So we'll close our eyes and we'll bow our heads and we'll pray. And I invite you, as a way of making this real and tangible, if you'd like to come and pray at the altar, I'd love to pray with you. It may be that the Lord is moving in your heart that you have never known Jesus as the Christ. And it's clear to you and you can ignore it no longer. And I invite you to come and give your life to him as the Christ and receive salvation and forgiveness of your sins in him. Commit your life to him. It may be that you're a Christian who's all tangled up in sin And this is God reminding you of what you have in Jesus, the mercy and grace, the ability to repent and lay that aside. I invite you to come and pray through that repentance. It may be that the Lord would have you come and pray for someone else, for someone else's salvation. Whatever it might be, the altar is open, and we'll have some time to pray now.